and welcome to the Travelling Sisterhood of Art Historians podcast. We are Maddie, Freya, Caroline and Serena, four art historians who each week will be chatting to an expert about visual and material culture in the 18th and 19th centuries. Join us on an art historical journey as we think about how images and objects shape our world. Hello. So this episode, we're talking about all things textiles. And a few months ago, Serena and I caught up with Isabella Rosner, who is a PhD student at King's College London, where she's working on a project, a wonderful project on Quaker women's art. And she's also the host of the brilliant So What podcast, which I'm sure many of you will have listened to. We chatted to her about why she's drawn to historic textiles, what she thinks are some of the broader issues at stake in their history, and she tells us about her plans for So What. But first, let's recap what we actually know about textiles in this period and what we've been reading about this week. Textiles are a massive part of my work, so I was so excited to chat with Isabella. I'm particularly fascinated by how much people genuinely knew about textiles in the past. So while today's consumers, you know, we might struggle to tell a polyester from a viscose without looking at the label, um, or a satin from a taffeta, or even the difference between a fibre and a weave, and don't even get me started on the phrase silks and satins, consumers of the past were so materially literate, they did understand these differences and they understood this terminology. People understood so much more about the textile and sartorial worlds around them. Textile education is a huge part of this. From childhood, people were taught how fabrics were made and where different fibres came from. One of my favourite sources around this is a children's book by Eleanor Fenn, in which the children act out dialogues. One of these includes a section where the children play at being shopkeepers and describe the items that they're selling. So one of these people is a draper and they talk about linen and how it's made from flax. And they follow in the dialogue the whole process through from plant to storefront. We see evidence of this really intense material literacy continuing into adulthood. So if we think about sources like Barbara Johnson's album, we can see that textiles were something that people used to negotiate and navigate their understanding of the material world. So Johnson's album is in the Victoria and Albert Museum, and it is filled with fabric samples and descriptive notes about every garment that Johnson had made from the age of eight in 1746 through into her 80s. So not only does she intimately understand these textiles, she sees them as a way of recording her own life story. Your point about material literacy, Serena, I think is so apt. And I'm so intrigued by this idea and this act of women recording fabric samples, especially over an entire lifetime. I mean, that's an incredible record to have as well. What I think that makes me think of straight away, especially as a historian of 18th century France, is of course Marie-Antoinette Gazette des Etures de la Reine, which is this wonderful an incredibly rare volume. So it's wrapped in green parchment um, and it contains really bright fabric samples showing lots of different patterns and especially textiles full of flowers worn 
by Queen Marie Antoinette in 1782. So at this point, she's about 26 years old. So what she actually did, it would have been part of her daily ritual, and it would have taken place probably in her bedchamber uh, just before she started her toilette for the day. And one of her ladies-in-waiting would have brought her this um, volume and she would have flipped through it and then she would have marked the particular textile that she wanted to wear that day with a pin. And apparently during more recent restorations at Versailles, several lost pins have been found in the floorboards of, the, of her bedroom, um, which I just think is fabulous. And it just shows how engaged someone like the Queen of France was with the materiality of the textiles that she was enjoying and consuming as well. That's so interesting, isn't it? That kind of, that dexterous engagement that she's sort of, you know, literally laying her hands on these fabric samples and we can sort of imagine those processes. So I'm going to completely bring the conversation quite literally down to earth now uh, and tell you far from the glamorous palaces of Versailles about some scraps of old fabric uh, that were found in Ireland during archaeological excavations in the 18th century. So archaeology was really in its infancy in this period, and part of my research has been looking at the Countess of Moira, who was the wife of an Anglo-Irish peer and who ran her own salon in Dublin. So this was a place where writers, intellectuals, historians and artists would meet and discuss the pressing issues of the day. And she was involved in a dig outside of Dublin, the main discovery from which was a male bog body. Now, this body still had on it some preserved textiles, and the Countess wrote an account of them um, that's really fascinating because she basically uses this find, and specifically the textiles uh, attached to it, to justify or at least strengthen her and her husband's political and colonial position. So in her report, for example, she proposes that the body is that of an Irish king, and she includes some sketches of what she believed the garment he was buried in would have looked like, which are then published by the Society of Antiquaries in London in the 1780s. But what really struck me was the way that she makes these connections between the old fabric that's dug out of the ground and the 18th century textile industry. So she was a really big champion of this industry. And a few years before the bog body was discovered, she actually hosted a masked ball or a masquerade where all the guests were told to come dressed in costumes that were made using Irish made textiles. So you begin to see the ways in which the making and the histories of textiles are basically politicized. That is such a fascinating um, example, Maddie. I think actually through all of your examples, you've kind of shown this um, relationship between these kind of big ideas, these kind of big political histories, and then these um, kind of tiny fabric swatches and, and their role within kind of women's lives. And so textiles are kind of really useful way of uncovering lost narratives and stories. Um, and so for me in my work, textiles come up uh, again in, in this way of recording these lost, um, these lost stories through the records of the Old Bailey, uh, which document numerous instances of patchwork being stolen. Um, and these examples often stress their importance to the families that they belong to, um, or these accounts show how um, knowledge of a specific patchwork design could be used as proof that a stolen quilt was under a person's ownership. And this was the case of James uh, Hamilton, whose um, quilt was, was stolen by Samuel Wallace in 1783. And so when asked by the court, what do you know them by? being uh, the textile. Hamilton replied, my wife made this out of a bit of patchwork. And so 
what I think that story tells us is this really kind of intimate understanding on Hamilton's part of um, his wife's textile work and making. And so that goes back to kind of Serena's point earlier about material literacy and just how um, knowledgeable individuals were about textiles in the past. And I think this is something that um, really comes up in Isabella's work as well, which is very much concerned with, um, you know, women's work and kind of needleworking and the kinds of things they made on a daily basis. everyone. This episode we are very excited to welcome our guest Isabella Rosner who is currently a PhD student at King's College in London but whom you might also know from the wonderful So What podcast which explores the history of textiles. Welcome Isabella. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to be here. So excited to be speaking to you today. Um, not least because textiles are very close to Freya and my hearts and central to our own research. And I think that we three all quite emphatically believe in the power of stitches to tell people's stories. So I'm absolutely thrilled to hear what tales textiles have told you. Oh, thank you. That was so beautifully said. So I guess the opening question, why textiles? What brought you to them in terms of your scholarship and also your work on So What? What is what is it about textiles that you love so much? Ooh, okay, I'm going to give like a short life story spiel because I, I feel very lucky in that I'm always been interested in essentially the same thing. It's like my journey to textiles is very logical and it's been a very straightforward path. I was told in seventh and eighth grade, basically, I had an English teacher who made us read a classic novel a month. Um, and one of the first things I read was Little Women. And it like, I don't know, unleashed something massive in me as like an only child in Los Angeles. I hadn't really thought about history. I hadn't really thought about literature. Like I just hadn't really thought much about the past or anything outside of the world in which I was living. And from there, I started reading like basically only 19th century literature, mostly uh, written by women. And I all of a sudden got really into period dramas as well. For some reason, getting into liter that classic literature, those classic novels, and then the period dramas, I started getting so interested in historic costume because I had never seen anything like that. Like I remember so well, like, turning on the TV and seeing Martin Scorsese's The Age of Innocence and like seeing Michelle Pfeiffer in that dark blue, like, I think it's like 1870s, 1880s dress. I was like, I don't know what's going on, but like something, my brain was like, the synapses were going. And from there, I was like, okay, I want to be a costume designer because it, I am very eager to find a job that combines creativity with research. And I like was very lucky that I did a few TV gigs, like it costume design internships. And I was like, this is great. It is actually not for me. Something that was a bit more research focused. Mm -hmm. So then I started looking towards museums, looking at museum work while being very interested in historic costume. I then was very lucky that I got an internship at the Met. Um, and I was working with two curators of textiles in the American wing and European sculpture and decorative arts. I was helping them with distillation about samplers. It was like the final piece in the puzzle. I was helping them do this research and I was like, oh my God, this, it's beyond, like I was so interested in women in costume. Then I looked at these textiles and I was like, oh, it's more than just what people wear. It's also what people use and how they surround themselves with material and how 
samplers and other pieces of textiles oftentimes have names and dates and stories within them. And it really, I all of a sudden found what I had been looking for for a long time, which was being able to rediscover people who who I felt like had been forgotten by history. Well, I really like <laughs> the way in which the kind of individual threads of your own life kind of match these other threads, to use a kind of a metaphor, of all these other lives yeah. that you've become interested in. And I think you wove that narrative really um, interestingly together. It's so fascinating to me that your life narrative very much mirrors my life narrative. I'm like, oh, there are other people like me out there. That's lovely. Too really nice to be in the age of like Twitter and other social media accounts to like be able to find people who have similar interests. And I guess you've been able to kind of formalize those networks through So What as well. So which brings together a lot of these uh, people that you've just described, uh, like yeah. you and myself and Serena, all of whom are kind of nerdily passionate about textiles. Wow. One of the joys of doing a podcast is being able to like professionalize. Is that a word? I don't know. It's a word now. Uh, to be able to like solidify basically internet connections and friendships and to be able to turn what is like a virtual connection based on passion and shared research into something like concrete and something that is public and something that allows everybody involved to to share that information and research that they're so passionate about. So textiles is very much the thing that has brought us all together. Um, But the general perception of textiles is, I think, still in the public eye, frustratingly, that they are ephemeral, that they're feminized, that they're very domestic and quotidian. But there's a lot more to textiles, isn't there? Uh, So what do you think are the bigger narratives at stake in the history of textiles? First of all, big mood related to like just feeling like a lot of people, a lot of capital H historians and people in other fields like don't take textiles seriously. I feel like textiles, like a lot of material culture, can tell us so much about so many types of lives. And I think textiles specifically, and maybe I'm I'm obviously biased because I tend to study textiles made and used by women. I think that textiles and the history of consumption and fashion and decorative arts, maybe more generally, like allows us to look at the narratives and the stories of women, oftentimes women who in the rest of the art historical canon and the historical canon itself, like are gone. There is no opportunity to hear their voices and to get to know who they are. There are hundreds and even thousands of like Picasso scholars out there. And I'm like, cool, rock on. But also like there are thousands of years of textiles that ha- like nobody is working on that stuff. And like that dichotomy was really odd and made me excited because I feel like there are so many narratives that textiles can inform us about. I am very on board with this. I mean, I think it's completely true that you can you can essentially tell the history of the world and person kind through textiles in yes. ways. Like all of the big issues I think that are coming up in the study of history at the moment. So everything from gender history and queer histories and, and BIPOC histories, like textiles can play a huge role in unveiling those more marginalized stories because they're not the ones that are written down, but they are recorded in these alternative ways. I think we've talked at 
kind of a quite a high level, quite a broad level about why you think textiles are so important, Isabella. But I'm wondering what it is specifically about the sort of 17th and 18th centuries, your period of textiles that kind of drew you to study that period. Okay, so basically, when I was like starting off in uh, just being interested in history and fashion history, I was very interested in the Victorian era. I was, I think it's largely because of the literature I was reading and all the period dramas, because so many of them are 19th century. I think as time has gone on, I've gone further and further back. But I think what's really stuck with me about that period and like why those objects blow my mind the most and stick with me the most is because, <laughs> this is so like fatalist, but I think it's because a lot of things were going crazy and wrong in like mid to late 17th century England. Like I think a lot about this, the raised work, needlework that was happening largely from like 1650 to 1675, which is the prime time for uh, a civil war, a restoration. There's a fire in London, right? The great fire is happening. There's plague, like everything. It's, I just think, look at these objects. It's like 1665, it's like 1666, whatever. These girls are making like crazy, amazing, very detail-oriented objects while the world is changing drastically and oftentimes in like very violent ways around them. I do think it also has like some really interesting reflections and, and mirroring now the idea that like a lot of things are going wrong and weird and we are living during a global pandemic and during this time, so many people have taken up stitching or gardening or other forms of there's this need, I think, to like beautify and to focus on the good and the bright and the beautiful and to focus on something, to focus one's attention, whether it be on beadwork or needlework or gardening or making your sourdough loaves. I did not expect that my research would feel so relevant today, but it really does. I love that. I love that kind of comparison between today and the 17th century as well. And often these tasks are so kind of absorbing as well. It's not just that the kind of detail is that they take a lot of time and you have to concentrate. So that makes sense as a way of kind of cope as a coping mechanism. Definitely. And remind me when yeah. you go up to Isabella. So what's your end date for the project? So my end date for my PhD is like approximately 1800 because it kind of it ends with Ackworth and Westtown schools, which were like the two big Quaker schools that brought in like a quite restricted but very stylized needlework style for Quakers. Ackworth was founded in 1779, uh, Westtown in 1799. So I'm going to look a few years beyond that because I need to see how that Quaker needlework style developed and kind of settled in. But for yeah, for my PhD, it's like right around that time. But in terms of like my life interests, <laughs> any and all textiles always. So we have established that the world was changing a lot in the 17th and 18th century and was as much of a dumpster fire then as it is now. But what <laughs> is happening to textiles more broadly at that time? Are they being manufactured in new ways compared to earlier centuries? Is there something really special about the materiality of textiles at that moment? Oh, yes. I think for my love of 17th, 18th century stuff is due to a mixture of like a series of quite intense trends that kind of shift really quickly and longer term technological changes. So like, I really love raised work. I've mentioned it before, like some people call it stump work. That's kind of an antiquated term. So like I'm obsessed with raised work because it happened for like 25 years and then just disappeared. But then a few, I also like 
at the same time as I think about those things, I also think about like cotton printed textiles. Like all of a sudden it's the middle of the 18th century and everybody's like, oh my God, we're printing on cotton. We are printing these amazing kind of toile de jouie prints. And we have these like lovely pastoral scenes, but also like let's celebrate George Washington over here. And like, let's get like weirdly Egyptomania over here. And like, I like, I really love seeing people experiment with technologies kind of at the very beginning of the use of tech that those technologies and just kind of seeing how wild and crazy they can get. And I think that the 18th century, there is a lot of that going on between, uh, you know, cotton printing, but also like silk weaving is getting like so crazy. And the center of that is changing from, you know, continental Europe to like all of a sudden it's London because you have all your Huguenot weavers coming in. And it's the idea of I think 18th century specifically in a way that the 17th century doesn't quite have. The 18th century combines technological change and increased globalization and people moving across continents and bringing skills with them and bringing styles with them and then shifting them once they move to like their new lands or whatever. And I think there's a lot of, there's just a lot of new and sometimes crazy ideas coming out of the 18th century because everybody is like, oh my God, we have this new capital we have this new wealth we are moving across the world and we have this technology to help us do it let's just go ham i think that's really true and also the way that you're talking about it adds a lot of nuance to that grand history of industrial change and that textiles are in this sort of everything's getting better all the time isn't it wonderful kind of narrative but no in the 18th century there is some yeah, there's some not great stuff. There's some wild things that happen in this kind of process well, of experiment. We've kind of danced around the topic of your PhD a little bit. We've kind of talked about when you study, but we haven't kind of gotten down to the kind of bare bones of, of what it is you're doing at the moment in your project. So tell us a bit more about that. So the title is long and I can't really remember it off the top of my head. So we'll just kind of describe <laughs> it. I think, yes, it's women performing godliness with good works, end quote. Quaker women's art before Ackworth and Westtown. 1650 to 17 to 1800 something like that basically i am looking at women's decorative arts but specifically kind of textile material culture things specifically so the first half is 17th century english quaker needlework made by girls in and around the city of london and the second half is 18th century philadelphia wax and shell work shadow boxes that's kind of like people call them different things they're like basically mini grotto dioramas made out of wax and shell. And the reason I am combining those two things is because I wanted uh, an opportunity to study the UK and the US 17th and 18th century. And because there is like a strong overlap between those two things, like of course the Quakers in Philadelphia came from the UK and brought with them certain Quaker ideals and skills. And the reason I'm studying this stuff is because I've worked in a, I've been very lucky to have worked in a lot of museums and have come across a lot of Quaker needlework. And I think a lot of people who are familiar with needlework generally are like, yes, they can spot a Quaker sampler because it's almost always black or dark brown, very stylized, very simple, sometimes like with sad verses and stuff. But what I found very, I walked in to the world of needlework being like, yes, I know what Quaker, what Quaker art is all about. But then I um, was working at Colonial Williamsburg last year, and there was a an inquiry about wax and shell work in the collection. And it happened to be that the person I was working for, Kim Ivey, who's the senior curator of textiles, was like, Isabella, you should go look at this stuff. So I go to look at these objects. There are two of these big 
diorama things. And I do some research on them and they are both known to have Quaker provenances. And I was like, I, what, excuse me, I've been living under the assumption that Quaker art was like a bit sad and dour for like my whole life. I'm seeing these objects. It was like the objects were bonkers. Did not understand what was going on. Knowing myself, I obviously had to like dig deep into research because research is like how I try to answer questions and solve problems. Turns out I found there were six of these things, at least six of these objects known to survive, all with Quaker provenances. And I was like, oh my God, it's happening. Oh my God, what? Is this a PhD project percolating? And basically the whole thing happened because I was confused as to why these objects how and why these objects were Quaker if what I knew to be Quaker was a bit sad, stylized, and kind of somber. So between the gigantic wax and shell work shadow boxes and these samplers, I was like, oh my God, something is happening. Why was Quaker art so crazy before it got so not crazy? That sounds fascinating. So not only are you kind of enriching the history of textiles and the other objects that you're looking at but you're really kind of rewriting the history of Quaker art and its various forms during this period. I think it sounds fascinating and I think that it it chimes well with a lot of what we were saying earlier as well about the broader implications of textiles that textiles can rewrite the ways that we are thinking about broader social religious histories at the time and it all kind of comes together through textiles. So you've spoken about needlework and these dioramas and the kind of connections between them. And needlework often gets sequestered off by itself in histories of material culture and decorative arts. But how do you think that textiles fit within these broader ranges of creative practices, both by the Quaker women that you research and perhaps more broadly as well? Okay, so I think in terms of Quakers, textiles have not really been studied that I I haven't seen any scholarship about women making textiles or women's material culture generally before like Ackworth and Westtown. There was a book published in 1901 about Quaker fashion, and there are some studies about surviving pieces of Quaker clothing and kind of how some of them really are like seem quite Quaker and some of them are like very contradictory and contrasty as well. Because either nothing has been written, maybe it's both, nothing has been really written about creative practices by female Quakers before 1800, like really at all. I am out here thinking like, oh, like maybe it was only these objects, only textiles, like only these shadow boxes. That surely can't be true. I think there were, it was part of a much larger education, schoolgirl education. And I mean, there are, were lots of Quaker schools in London and England and then Philadelphia. And I think that from what I can tell, and I say this because I can only tell because of what survives specifically in 17th century needlework, like sweets, one of which I'll talk about later. It seems like a lot of Quaker women's stuff was equally decorative. This level of like unfeasibly and kind of unrealistically decorative where everything not only used the finest materials, but it also was just, it just didn't need to be that decorative and yet it was. The textiles and shadow boxes fit into, uh, like match a lot of Quaker women's artistic practices generally before 1800, but it is really hard to tell because there is no scholarship about it. I think it's really fascinating that there's this kind of fluidity between women's different creative practices but also these boundaries like that the the actual practice of say stitching raised work is is a very different set of manual skills to making a diorama or shell work or something else 
but there's this aesthetic and kind of cultural connection and fluidity and symbiotic relationship between all of these different material outputs that's what I find so fascinating about it that you know that the doing it is different but the the concepts behind it are so connected yeah and that's like something that I'm I have to think about a lot because like that's kind of the overarching that's the umbrella for my project that's like what brings everything together this whole concept that doesn't change of Quakers were very much platforming the importance of plainness but at the same time Quakers and like very from Quakers from very substantial and significant Quaker families were creating some like deeply deeply unplain objects and how did they remedy that contradiction and how was that allowed and I think one of the reasons I'm doing that is because one it's the thing that bothers me the most that I cannot figure out and two it allows the materials to move beyond just a study of the objects themselves and of material culture into something much bigger because it brings in questions of like religion itself and consumption and taste and women's accomplishments and like the contradictory nature of people, especially in a capitalist society. Like how do you, how did these people rectify being extremely wealthy and like being very successful in mercantile endeavors while having, while following a very, a religion that projected and platformed surveillance and plainness. And I I am finding that contradiction spooky. We've covered uh, your PhD topic, I think quite extensively now, but I both, I think Serena and I want to hear a little bit more about, so what we touched on it earlier, but in terms of why you started, but, where do you see the project going? I think is maybe a, a good question. What What are you going to do with so what? Where Where are we headed? That's a great question, and that is a question that I wish I could answer better. I started the project out of a certain amount of desperation, and I will explain that. So I'm still technically in the first year of my PhD, and I've spoken at a few like lightning talk things. Like before everything shut down, I spoke in person at a lightning talk event where it was me and a lot of other new PhD students talking in, in history, because I'm in the history department talking about their research. I was the only one talking about uh, material culture or anything even close to it, anything that wasn't politics or economics or certain things like that. And I watched at the end, like we all were sitting in a panel and everybody could come up to us at the end. And I watched as nobody came up to me and like everybody else had like a bunch of people coming up to them really interested in their project. And that is like totally fine. And in that moment, I was like, oh, like material culture is a weird place to be because it fit, it's kind of it takes from a bunch of different fields. And it means that no matter what department you're in academically, it's still it's a bit of a weird time. Like I am the only person, I think, in my department amongst PhD students who's studying anything to do with like objects, material culture, art history. But in the art history programs that I've been in, I'm the only person there not studying painting or sculpture or architecture. And it's just kind of a weird place to be. And in that moment, after the lightning talk, I sat there and I was like, okay, so this is a, this is a big issue for me specifically. And I think other people in this in the same field, like I am so used to working in museums and being on Twitter amongst people who like really get this and love this stuff as much as I do. So I feel really seen like I feel like those objects are really seen. But in the larger world of history or art history or archaeology or whatever, this stuff is really not appreciated or respected. And I've been wanting to do a podcast for a long time because I love to talk and I love to talk about objects. And I think that needlework and women's women's textiles deserve the time of day that they are not getting. 
And then Corona rolled up and I was like, no time like the present. I enjoy a side project. And so I, I did start it kind of out of desperation, but I was like, I need to, I need to fight for what I study and I need the, I want people to respect it and to love it as much as I do. I know that I want to, I really like doing it because it gives me something to do in addition to the PhD and I like to stay busy. And I also, it gives me public speaking opportunities and a chance to put my voice out there into the world of podcasters or people that study this stuff or whatever. And really, it's just I want people to get excited about these materials in the same way that I'm excited about them. I think your point about like your kind of very personal story about worrying about your objects not being kind of respected or deemed kind of worthy enough in certain some kind of disciplinary kind of eyes is so relatable, probably for both Serena and myself I oh, am yeah. kind of bad- <laughs> I have a PhD in art history but it's not really proper art history which I'm saying in kind of air quotes so I definitely kind of recognize and understand that as well yeah I think I spent and- a long time as a historian thinking oh well that's something that's acceptable in art history this is just a problem in history and then I've gradually realized no 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 it's a problem everywhere so we've reached the point in the podcast where we ask our guest to bring along an object or artwork of particular interest so Isabella can you describe for us what object you've brought along and maybe say something about why it's so special for you and for listeners we'll be putting up a couple of images of Isabella's choice over on our Instagram account oh so exciting yes okay so this object it is a work box uh, an embroidered workbox made by a girl named Hannah Downs in 1683 or 84. It is a box covered in couched and laid work stitches made by Hannah Downs when she was at Shacklewell. And Shacklewell was the first official Quaker girl school started by George Fox, the founder of Quakerism. And in uh, in Hackney, which is very exciting because when I moved to Hackney, I like I there's a Shacklewell Lane, there's a Shacklewell Road. I've walked it and I have felt the Quaker presence. It's very exciting. But basically, this is a really exciting object because in it, it's one of one of just a very few number of surviving suites of needlework objects. So basically, in it is two of Hannah Downs's samplers and a few other objects she made. She made some garters. She made a little hair work pin for her husband, made some bags. She made a pin cushion. She made some other pieces um, in addition to this box. But what is awesome to me is that later generations of girls in her family also put their needleworked objects in the box as well. So you have her objects and her like almost entire suite of needlework, what she was taught at school. And then after that, you have her daughter, who is Dorcas Haynes, a Quaker, who I also love because her needlework sampler that survives is very important to my work. I actually think that her, if I'm, yes, Dorcas Haynes's sampler, the top of it is my cover photo on Twitter. Like that is how deep I roll with her. Her work is really important because it's it shows the transition of of like needlework motifs from the 17th century style of Quaker motifs to like this very specific alphabet that is then the motifs that are seen in that sampler are not only seen in the 17th century Quaker English examples, but also in 18th century Philadelphia Quaker examples. And so it's really important because it does seem like a transitional piece that suggests how those pieces moved and how that style moved. And there are later like people in the family from the 19th century included their own embroidery in there. And so I love it because it's like a time capsule of a family's experience. And I I think a lot about lineages of women makers 
and how they were informed by each other and that desire to put everything in the same box and be like, this is me, this is my family, and this is how I fit into this group. It shows that even from the beginning of Quaker women's art, and even at a school that was started by George Fox, the founder of the religion itself, um, Quaker women's art was so bright, so decorative, and so unplain, which begs a lot of questions like, so George Fox knew about this. The founders of Quakerism knew about this and supported it. And what does that say about that contradiction between Quaker plainness and Quaker decoration? The Hannah Downs object is the best because it, it answers as many questions as it asks. God, it's so close to my heart because it's so close to my PhD. It, it's everything. It, it tells so many stories and not just one person's story, a whole family's story as well. It sounds fascinating. And like it, it literally is a kind of a crucible for all of the threads of your research and the themes mm-hmm. that we've talked about in this podcast as well. Definitely. It's a perfect encapsulation of your PhD thesis. but And also, as Serena said, the, all the things we've talked about in this podcast as well it's it's her telling her well the family telling their life stories and then we as kind of historians interested in textiles can read those stories from that object it sounds amazing I must I really want to see it uh well thanks for joining us Isabel that was absolutely fascinating and I look forward to catching up on all the future episodes of so what thank you so much for having me it's been like so fun it's been genuinely so fun I love talking to other people who care about this stuff You've been listening to the Travelling Sisterhood of Art Historians podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram and to subscribe.